This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNB Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Latest Developments. In Seattle, real estate development is rampant, and to say it's caused a bit of anxiety in the city would be an understatement. The bottom line is, you can't walk a few blocks in any direction in the city right now without being faced with the fact that real estate developers, for better or for worse, have a say in how Seattle is evolving. What might not be apparent is that not all developers are the same. They all have varying priorities and stories behind why they do what they do and how they view and approach the city they are shaping. Understanding how they approach development differently is a first step towards Seattleites having a real influence in how buildings are shaped, built, and affect our communities. How do community members and architects alike influence the decisions developers make? How do the unintended consequences of development and construction affect us all, regardless of income level? How do we all engage developers to make the best decisions for Seattle? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Sandy Wolf, an architect here at Ford and Bellum. Sandy, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks for having me. So, how long, Sandy, have you been in Seattle? I moved to Seattle in 2010, so I've been here about eight years. I moved right after college when I graduated, fortunately, at the very peak of the recession and realized no one in the right mind was going to employ me. And so I moved from Auburn, Alabama, following getting my architecture degree and moved to Seattle, which I had never been to before arriving here. Oh, it could have gone really badly. Good I don't, I don't know plan. why that was just like, sure, well, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, <laughs> so Auburn and Seattle, same, same? So Yeah, totally the same. Um, very similar. No, Auburn, Alabama and Seattle are very different places. But I'm not from Auburn originally. I'm from Ohio and moved to Auburn to go to college. They have a great architecture program that I was really fortunate to be a part of. And so after I graduated in, I actually graduated in 2009, but stuck around to finish my design build thesis in rural Alabama. And then in 2010, when I realized still no one was going to hire me, uh, my then boyfriend, now husband and I decided to move to Seattle and see if we could maybe get jobs. And fortunately that worked. It's kind of terrifying looking back. I'm like, really? Okay. It's a good plan. It's really solid. <laughs> what was the, like the first challenge culturally moving from Alabama to Seattle? We loved Seattle from the start. I mean, I think the hardest part was not having work for so long. And mm. it took me probably about six months to find a job in 2010, just because architecture was so slow. So I had a series of really random jobs. I was an SAT tutor and a speed dating host and oh, a, yeah. a number of other things. Of course you, you were. were. I was a speed dating host. host. You know, I'm kind of sad that I feel like speed dating is probably at this point non-existent because it's been replaced by Tinder and whatnot. I don't really know. As someone who's like been in a relationship for far longer than I like to admit, uh, I never really did either. But being a speed dating host was fascinating. I got paid to show up at a bar and I was basically in charge of ringing a bell and making people rotate every eight minutes. <laughs> Um, but it is also this like fascinating sort of anthropological study yeah. of speed dating. Also, by the way. Yeah, it's just, just every eight minutes. I ring a bell really like, why are you still doing whatever? Um, it's just modern management. I'm getting used to it. This is why we rearrange desks all the time. We might, right. we might be onto something though, guys. Like, do you need to spend more than eight minutes on anything? Uh, you should know immediately. <laughs> I'm going to do it with clients. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, why is everything in eight minute increments? It's a long story. I just feel like things get stale after eight minutes and we do switch it up. Speed dating as a method to design your house might be fascinating. Just like writing that down. <laughs> Speed date an architect. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a thing maybe. Uh, not entirely sure. But speed dating as a way to like enter Seattle and start to study the city was really fascinating. And my company didn't do a ton of advertising, the company I worked for. And so 
the people who would go speed dating were people who were like Googling speed dating Seattle. And this is like the number one hit. We tended to get a lot of people who had done online dating and were really over it. This was really before Tinder. And so this was like match.com era. Before it was actually effective in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So this was like match.com era where you were really like going to find someone's profile and like them and write back and forth for a long time. And so we get a lot of people who are like, I'm really tired of being pen pals. Mm-hmm. I want to meet someone in person. And that's the beauty of speed dating is like you instantly are like, do we have a connection? Is there any chemistry here or not? It was also really fascinating because we would do different age groups. So there was like a younger set and an older set. And the older set totally knew what they wanted. And then the younger set was always like tended to be pickier. And there were fascinating trends like with guys, because this was all straight speed dating. Um, Gay Mm -hmm. speed dating probably exists, but is also really confusing logistically because of the way (laughs) speed dating works and that you have two circles and they don't intersect. So it was really fascinating because like, there was almost like 95% of the time there would be one woman that every single man in the room would choose. Mm -hmm. Because speed dating, right? It's like if you both have a like scorecard of sorts, the guy and the girl, and if you both mark yes, then you get each other's contact information. And if only one of you marks yes or both of you mark no, nothing happens. You don't have any way to contact this person afterward. So part of my job was also the data entry after the fact. And it was really interesting. Like women tended to be all over the place Mm -hmm. in general as far as like which guys they liked and would tended to pick fewer people so you might have a party with 10 men and 10 women and women would pick like two to four and guys would tend to pick like eight to ten as far as yeses and there was almost always one what we what daniel my husband at some point started would start going with me uh because it was fascinating and we would take bets on who our big winner would be and you could always like pick out there'd be one woman that every guy in the room would mark yes for. And you're like, really? (laughs) Like all of you are attracted to this person? Was it always obvious on the way in? Like when you were greeting people or you're like, you're the one that everybody's gonna pick? Sometimes you'd be surprised, but most of the time you could tell it was like pretty typically the most traditionally attractive person in the room. Uh, Not always, but- Damn it, my gender, I swear to God. Yeah, Charles. It was (laughs) really interesting, but I I started- I started bringing my husband with me because in a perfect world, you have even numbers with speed dating. But if you have odd numbers, you have to make small talk with whoever. And if we had odd numbers and there were more women, women typically had zero interest in talking to me. They were mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. we didn't come here to make friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, not about it. Um, so it was just like generally a fascinating thing to explore in Seattle. Get out of my way, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a great part-time job. I really enjoyed it. I did it for probably two years. Um, so a lot of speed dating under my belt. That's amazing. I feel like that would be really hard to quit doing. It's like an ongoing yeah. psychology experience. No, it was, I mean, I I love reality TV, as I will tell you, <laughs> like far too long if you want to hear about it. So it's like that on like a very personal level. You're like, what is happening right now in this room? <laughs> so I went speed dating once in college before, uh, like when I, I was pretty young, but we had, had like Valentine's Day speed dating or something. And it's actually very entertaining because it's so low pressure. Like you only only have to talk to someone for most of them are actually shorter than eight minutes. The company I worked for say, was a like for me, long. eight minutes sounds like a really long. It goes time. pretty fast, but also even people who are like, I'm not a great conversationalist, or like I'm, I can't work a room. If someone is sitting across from you, you will find something to talk about, and then you can tell pretty quickly like if there's something mm-hmm. there, or if there's not, and it makes for great stories. And half the burden regardless. is on them too. So, so you really only have to account for four minutes. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually like not, I don't really know if it exists much anymore, but it was very fun and I would recommend. (laughs) Maybe in your future you can do a reality show about speed dating and it'll be like one of those, you know. It'll be retro. If I give it like three years, it's going to be retro. Yeah. And then it's so popular. You're right. It'll be like an old school trend, uh, yeah. hipster thing to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. It'll be like, no, I don't use apps. That's yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so over. How do you track the time with eight minutes? You have like a chess clock and it's like, because if you're going to do this show no, in the no, future, yeah. you cannot be keeping time with your mm. iPhone. No, you can't do it with your iPhone. No, because that's it's like not old school enough. You're like a so metronome need, or something. Yeah, we would need a really solid timer yeah. of some sort. I really envision like a specifically tuned like sand timer sort of mm, deal. Perfect. I yeah. think that that's yeah. really what you would do on TV. I think so too. Okay. 
Yeah, we'll storyboard this later. <laughs> we we so, can get back to this. It's, gonna be, it's going to be so, great. Speed dating aside, eight years is actually a long time. A lot's happened in Seattle in eight years. It has, yeah. What's it been like watching the city evolve since you got here? It's been pretty interesting. I lived in Beacon Hill when we first moved here. And when I used to commute to work down in Soto, the light rail didn't go anywhere other than the airport and downtown. So there was always a seat on the light rail. There was always lots of seats. You could sit wherever you want. And it's interesting, like, even in the time that I've lived here, now that it goes beyond, it reaches Capitol Hill. I think Capitol Hill was really the big milestone, but also UW because it's the other side of the lake. It's crazy how much that's exploded and how much more it feels like, oh, it's like a city. Like, there's public – there's always been public transit in Seattle since I've lived here. Buses have always been a big thing. But it starts to feel more like those amenities exist in a way – they didn't when I first moved here. And I also think tech has become a much bigger player. Definitely existed when I moved here. Amazon's been around a long time. So has Microsoft, all of those things. But it feels like all of those businesses have gotten bigger. There's a lot more focus on them. I think a, there's a lot of tension in Seattle around the presence of so much tech and tech money. For sure. um, and I think that that's really come to the forefront in a way that it didn't exist when I moved here. Mm-hmm. And because I moved here in, during the recession, like everything in Seattle was really pretty cheap compared to big cities on the East Coast. I mean, that was one of the things. Um, there was like a whole pro-con list. I knew being in architecture right after school, I was going to move to a decent-sized city, especially in the economic climate. That was where I was going to find a job. So there was the list of places, Chicago, Boston, San Francisco. And Compared to all of those places, Seattle was significantly cheaper in a way that I don't think it is anymore. And no. it's interesting being here and being like, this is a great deal. And you're like, oh, no, it's just <laughs> as expensive I saw as they just else. updated the ranking. We're now third in the nation mm-hmm. for cost of housing. Only cost of housing. Yeah, housing Cost is of living, we're much lower, but cost of housing, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Last year, we were 10 last year yeah although it has just turned that seattle is not no longer las vegas has beat us as far as the fastest yes growing or the most expensive i'm not sure exactly what the metric is (laughs) a dubious prize (laughs) yeah exactly so it's interesting it does feel like it's shifting a little bit for whatever reason i think a lot of that's due to the fact that we've had the most cranes in the country for so long. So there's mm-hmm. a ton of building, a ton mm-hmm. of development, and that we're starting to see things swing the other direction yep. because of that. So I'm glad you were the first person to say the D word. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the first one. Putting this show together about development, there's an irony. Designers and architects can't avoid talking about development because of what we do and because it's the first thing all of a sudden in Seattle specifically. Architecture and development are the same thing to a Seattleite now. And design and development. People just put those together too. You can't say one without the other. It seems like every episode, regardless of who we're talking to, they're equated. Yet it's a subject a lot of people are uncomfortable with because Seattleites specifically who aren't in the industry don't know what to do talking about development. They're just like, it's a reality. I can't change it. And then end of story. You at Board and Vellum don't necessarily specialize in working with developers, but just like Seattleites can't avoid dealing with developers. So it seems like something we all have to face and figure out a way to talk about. In your experience, what have you learned about how developers view how they affect the city? Or do they think about it at all? I'm actually really pro-development in a way that I think not everyone is comfortable saying, but I it doesn't mean that I necessarily love every development that's happening in the city, but I also think that Seattle is a lot of the sort of discomfort with development in Seattle is because Seattle's changing so fast. Like I said, it's even in the eight years that I've lived here, it's become significantly more expensive. But I'm in the camp that one of the only ways to combat that is to keep providing housing. We are in a place that people want to live and that's not changing. And Seattle is really still a relatively small city in the scope of things, right? That we're hovering somewhere around the 1 million mark within the city limits, I think. Uh, don't quote me on that. But that's nothing compared to a lot of cities on the East Coast and other cities on the West Coast. And so I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of the tension in Seattle around development is just that Seattle really was not a very big city until it's still not that huge. And it really wasn't very recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's where a lot of the tension happens. But I'm in the camp that development is good if we would like to keep housing happening in the city and not either make everyone move to the suburbs or pay $2 million for a home. So it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting sort of thing. And I think that's a hard conversation for people to have because especially if you've been in Seattle for a long time, much longer than me, it's easy to just like point the finger and be like, developers are the bad guys. But I also think that there's a bigger conversation about the fact that 
over 60% of Seattle's landmass is tied up in single-family homes in a way that's not common in other cities. And we in Seattle have this very sentimental attachment to that zoning and what can and can't happen in that zoning. That puts a lot of pressure on our housing stock, and it's one of the reasons why we're so expensive. And there's kind of a lot of combating forces that I think take a really nuanced look, and instead it's really easy to just pin bad things on the developers doing work in the city that's challenging. Now, that being said, there's a lot of development that I don't love aesthetically um, that I think is not necessarily the grade of building that you want people to do for the life of the city. But I also think developers are, it's their job the same way it's our job to be architects. And I understand a performa and that you have to report to that to some extent. So there's not like a great answer of how I feel about it. I think it's really nuanced. I think development is key to us continuing to be able to afford to live in the city and not constantly pushing people further and further out in a way that I think is not great for quality of life or sustainability or urban context, any of those things. So it's just, it's a hard thing to think about. And I think developers, for better or for worse, tend to get thrown under the bus in a changing city as the people doing bad things. But I also think there's a lot of good stuff that they're doing. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think one of the things that gets conflated a lot also in this conversation is a, a gravity problem. What I mean by gravity, I don't know if you've, you've heard that term before. It's used a lot. I learned it from tech companies. When your problem is, oh my God, everything's so heavy and it falls to the ground when I drop it because of gravity. Mm-hmm. That's really annoying. We should put all of our effort into fixing gravity. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the conversations around development is like, well, they just want to make money. And so their goal is to make money. So, of course, we're not going to like the product. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a gravity problem. Yes. Like, people do things, anything they do, in order to make a profit. But maybe there's a way to do that at the same time as engaging a community or doing it in a sensitive way. But if you start the conversation with, ah, how could you want to make money on building a building? We're never going to get anywhere in terms of making a more aesthetically pleasing building or a building that gives back to the community. Uh, And I wonder maybe if it isn't where we start the conversation. Do you think that developers are open to engaging a community? Do developers put a lot of thought into that initially? Or is it something you think architects, is it our responsibility to push them in that direction? You know, I think actually Seattle is such a community-focused place, and I think the city, I say for better or worse, which sounds terrible how it can be opposed engaging the community, but I think Seattle is really pushing it in new ways and that we're seeing complete overhaul of the the city's design review system in ways that you are forced to engage the community. Mm -hmm. It's always a challenge to engage the community. I think you learn really interesting things, but there can be people who are going to come out against what you're doing regardless of what you're doing, right? That there's Mm -hmm. always a little bit of resistance to change that's going to happen. And I think frequently that's the thing that is a developer sticking point for reaching out is that that sort of contingent is really scary. Sometimes deservedly so and sometimes it's just an uncomfortable place to be and I think we're all still sort of trying to figure out the best way to engage the community where you're getting constructive feedback right that's Mm -hmm. the challenge a lot of times with any feedback regardless of if it's community feedback or any other way you're getting feedback in your life is like how do you harness that force to get things that are constructive out of it and not just be in a room full of people yelling at each other from both sides I think that's all too often what we see when community feedback happens it's just like one side not wanting things to happen and the other side wanting things to happen in a different way and you're not really dealing with that at all. So I don't know that there's a perfect answer. I think some developers are more open to it than others. I think the city is forcing it more often, mm-hmm. um, which can be good, can be bad. Engaging communities is hard, and it so much often is project-specific. What are you building? How big is it? What's its lifespan that you're going to deal with? Right. It's a hard question. I mean, I don't have an answer. I don't yeah. know if anyone does. <laughs> like, Sandy has no answers, everybody. <laughs> I have no answers. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, community <laughs> engagement's hard. I'm it not really gonna, is. Yeah. And it's funny, uh, in my neighborhood, which is kind of a weird, like, southern edge of central, there's a new development going in just down my street. The city has a bunch of new rules. So flyers ended up on everybody's door, and it gave a time and a date to show up for, mm-hmm. what are they Community called? input, I right. think. Right, and I just didn't have time. And right. I wanted to go, and I was just like, God, I can't. And actually, a lot of people on my street, some of which have been there a long, long time and a very different income level mm-hmm. than me, and I'm a newcomer, uh, were kind of like looking for people to speak for them, mm-hmm. but not willing to go themselves. Right. 
And it seems like this city tries harder than any city I've ever lived in or known of Mm -hmm. and accomplishes less somehow. Totally. And I don't understand. I wish I had like the magic bullet to to bridge that gap. Well, and what that means then is that it just makes it so that places like the south side of Seattle is typically has lower income, doesn't tend to get as much feedback. You don't get as much community input. And then places with more money um, where people have more time is where you get people that are up in arms and they're not going to let anything happen. And I think it's interesting when I can look at a zoning map and sometimes you'll see projects coming through design review and I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to be an uphill battle just because of where you are, what you're up up against. And you're like, you're surrounded by million dollar plus homes. Like they're going to turn out and fight you for Mm -hmm. sure Mm -hmm. in a way. And obviously they have stakes in the game in a way that if you're surrounded by apartments, you're not going to get that feedback. Renters typically don't necessarily have the time. They don't have as much skin in the game to turn out. And so even the community feedback that you're getting is really disparate and seems to really depend on who your neighbors are in a way well, that And who's not... around to attend the meeting, mm-hmm. right? Do you have kids that you need to feed dinner yeah. to? Do you have uh-huh. a second job? I mean, when are are these community meetings during business hours or do they do them after hours? There's kind of a whole host of ways that you can now solicit community engagement that you have to for projects of various sizes. Mm-hmm. And they can be like a lemonade stand sort of approach. They can be tours. They can be office hours. They can be community meetings. And it really is like a choose your own adventure now with the city's new program. And I think like like Charles said, Seattle is a city that really cares and wants to do all these things. But it also means Seattle's a city with a ton of bureaucracy mm-hmm. that also makes things more expensive and makes developers, it takes longer to turn a project around. And so that time equates into money because if you're paying to finance a site, and it takes you two extra months, you're paying interest on that site for two extra months, all those things, again, drive housing costs. So it's this weird thing where we care and we have all these processes that we've set up so we can get all the input so we can make a good thing that's going to make everyone happy. And it's (laughs) also pushing costs up. And developers aren't just absorbing those costs. They pass them on to the renter, the buyer. No, then that's when aesthetics go out the window. Yeah, it's also true. And whatever nice-looking building, you could have developer A, really wanted to build a nice building and this is the performer that would afford that. Mm-hmm. And then their design fee goes up by 50%. Right. And then they're like, well, I guess it's just going to be the same old building like uh-huh. everything else because all the money's gone. Yeah. Well, and you look at things too. I mean, design review in the city is set up for exactly this purpose so that people can have input so we can get a better building so you can put it in front of a board. But we've all seen projects across town that have made it through design review and still aren't great quality buildings that are going to last a long time. I can think of examples in my neighborhood. And (laughs) at the same time, they also took longer and they're more expensive. And I think it's all really well-intentioned. I just don't know that it's getting the results that anyone wants on either side. Just frustrating. I wonder where the architect's role in this is. And I've gone back and forth in my own brain about it. Because where do we fall ethic? Are we supposed to be the advocate for our client? Are we supposed to be the advocate for the community? Are we supposed to be the advocate for aesthetics? It's a very confused position to be in. I was going to say yeah. all of those things. But that's but that's virtually impossible, right? Well, but you but <laughs> yeah. in theory, the equation has to balance out eventually, and you can't have all of the things. But I, I do think that all of those things should be considered, and and we'll have to figure out how it balances out over time. But a responsible architect would be thinking about their client and would be thinking about the impact on the community and would be thinking about the bigger picture, um, environmental impacts 20 years down the line, or all these things should be part of the equation. That equation won't work out the way you want it to for every project, and it'll be different every time. But mm-hmm. if you put all the variables in, something will be figured out at the end, and you can't you can't win every time. Well, I think also the thing that's challenging is that developers are, for better or for worse, very metric-minded people, right? They have a performa, they have a spreadsheet where they're going to fill in every change in square footage and every change in unit, all those things. Totally, no judgment there. I think that that's how your business works. And architects, at the same time, aren't really equipped with being able to quantify our end of things. So a lot of times the challenges we have with developer clients is that I can't give you a number that says, hey, you know, if we only do a six inch backsplash around your entire kitchen and um, we do like a little bit more about your stove, but we don't tile the whole thing. They can say to me, I'm going to save 
$200. And I can't say, well, you're going to sacrifice this on your rent or you're going to sacrifice this on your sales price. But I also think that it's like when those things add up and you're like, well, we did that here and then we cut back on this thing here and then we did a little, we squeezed it a little here. It is what a colleague of mine likes to call a death by a thousand cuts, Mm -hmm. but we can't prove it. Right. We don't have any data that says, oh, you did that. And so someone's going to pay this much less or you're going to get this many fewer offers or it's going to take two weeks longer to get a renter. We don't have that data. I don't know that it's even possible to get that data, but that is how their world is set up. That's what they're kind of interacting with is that mm-hmm. number on a spreadsheet. Yep. And we just have to say, trust me. And if there are some really great clients as developers who you build that trust with and you start to through projects and through it just experience, start to realize that. But I still don't think we have concrete data and I'm not sure we ever will on these things. Mm-hmm. And with a new client that you're not there yet or with someone who just really responds to their bottom line and their numbers, mm-hmm. that's always going to be a tough sell. Yeah. There's so many of the like new townhome type mm-hmm. development where the kitchen will have this decided upon two foot backsplash of tile. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, maybe there's a peninsula that comes out. But then the backsplash continues all the way to the edge of the countertop. And there's exactly enough room for one last upper cabinet. But it's not there. And I want to know, <laughs> how does that calculate out? Like somebody decided that that one extra upper cabinet and all of these units in this development is going to save them enough money to make that abomination of kitchen cabinetry be a thing that I see all the time. It makes me crazy. If I bought that place, I would have to like somehow somehow put some shelves up there (laughs) or something. (laughs) One thing that occurs to me is I don't think developers realize how much power they have to do good. To a degree, maybe. I'm making broad generalizations about developers right now, but why not? Everybody does it. It's fun. It's the newest trend. They clearly impact neighborhoods and they understand that, but they can do incredible things for a neighborhood. They'll never be thanked for it. Like mm-hmm. not a chance. Forget no. it. They could they could take a huge cut in profits and do something awesome for it. And the neighborhood would still be angry at them. Yeah. However, they are smart enough to know how much effect they could have by making certain decisions. Because as I was even writing the intro for this show, I was realizing that they are literally the ones deciding how Seattle evolves. I didn't want to write it that way because I felt like it sounded terrible because we all want to think, well, Seattleites, we have such a voice, uh, new and old, and how Seattle is going to become the Seattle of the future. But we don't. It's actually a few dozen people building very large buildings and shaping communities the way in which they envision them. They have the power to shape the communities the way they want, the way the current system of the world works. Are they envisioning them, though, or are they designing them to a specific, you know, profit return? It sounds like when you say that they're envisioning it, that they are being the designers and envisioning this new look. Is, Is that it? Yeah. Where does that line end? This is where the architect's role gets super fuzzy. Because an architect comes in, want, most architects I know really want to do good, regardless of who their client is or the size of their building. And they get an amount of square footage in a program. And you may or may not see the pro forma. Uh, so the architect has certainly a role in shaping, but those are the requirements they have to meet. It seems like developers and architects both have a role. I don't know if it's an equal role and shaping a building. And then all of that together shapes a community. And all of the power, regardless of whether you can argue or not, whether it is where it should be, but somebody there has the power and ability to do real good. In comparison with a city like New York City, Mm -hmm. uh, eminent domain, it's the most powerful eminent domain laws Mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, The city can literally just roll up to your door one day, knock and be like, we're buying your house. This is the amount of money we're buying it for. You need to leave in 60 days. And the law says you have to do it. And there's no middle ground. That's how strong the development rules are in New York. Here, it's, in terms of America, at least, the total opposite. You have a much bigger voice. And the developers, in turn, actually, also, because they don't have to follow those same stringent rules, also have a say. Um it isn't like New York where everything is, the density is so insane and the zoning is so restrictive that there's always 1000% demand and 0% supply. Mm -hmm. There's give here. 
And I guess I, even as I was writing the intro, I was trying to distill who can do the most good because it seems like communities do not have a real palatable direct line. The design review process we kind of just went over is extremely wanting. Have you had experience in having dialogues about that? Is that, some, is that something that developers think about? Or is that something you think maybe developers should be more educated about how much good they could do? I don't know. I think maybe it's just a hard question for me because I think community input is important. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there, I think the community input you get is really disparate depending on which community you're talking about, mm -hmm. which is really challenging. And I think Seattle, in an interesting way, because of our zoning, to some extent, has a lot of really interesting sort of gradients. And I, because of this, I think that developers are changing things mm -hmm. in a way that I think the city is changing as a growing city, right? Like I think you see big apartment buildings, some of them I wouldn't want to live in, right? That's mm -hmm. like, that. there's that discussion. But I also think that outside of maybe South Lake Union where Paul Allen decided to buy it right. and redevelop it wholesale, and, animal, yeah. which is a whole different thing, right? I think you could say like Paul Allen has built his own neighborhood. For sure. There are pros and cons to that, but I think Interestingly, like Seattle is actually a place where there is not a ton of room for 300 unit apartment buildings in mm -hmm. a way that you could in Bellevue that is happening in Redmond, that is happening in Woodenville. Seattle is still, the lots are pretty small, they're challenging, there are big buildings going up, but those tend to be more like 100 units, not 300 units. Mm -hmm. Most of those are getting pushed out further to places that have different zoning. And so I think Interestingly, are there apartment buildings that are 150 units that I don't think are particularly attractive? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Do I also think that while some communities might not be super excited about those, that bringing that density of people, I mean, I live in Ballard and I love living in Ballard. I live in a very small apartment building, which I also love and is a whole nother conversation about the size, the appropriate size of apartment buildings. But you hear people complain, I'll walk down the street, you'll hear people who have clearly lived in Ballard for a long time complain about parking mm -hmm. and complain about all these densities. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yes, that's valid. Parking in Ballard is tough. It's not nearly as tough as Capitol Hill, but whatever. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> do you love having eight grocery stores within walking distance and a whole host of restaurants and a library and a post mm -hmm. office and a bar and there's a hardware store and there's another hardware mm -hmm. store and there's all of these amenities in a really tight vicinity. And it's one of those where it's like, you could have more parking and you could have half maybe of these things. And I think that there's some great thing about building density in the city. And I think Seattle's challenging in bureaucracy in a lot of ways, but I think the urban villages that Seattle has built is really fostering density in specific places to get people hubs like Ballard, like Capitol Hill, where you have all these, these services in walking distance. And I think that a lot of people should be able to live there, even if that means it's a 200 unit apartment building that is not necessarily like my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great thing. And it might not be the most attractive building. Yes, yeah. there are some that I would wish people would do something different with. But I think the very fact that developers are coming in because of market forces, not because of the goodness of right. their heart, is I'm, a great thing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up parking, though, because yeah. I actually think this is one of those things where the city should be taking more of a stance. There are no requirements or very little placed on developers to build parking. Depending on where you are. Depending on where you are. That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, so down where I am, I live in a small area where there's two churches which rely heavily on street parking. Mm -hmm. And they are truly well-attended community centers. And dense apartment unit apartment buildings are beginning to be built right around them. Mm -hmm. And of course, very few are building parking because as we know as designers, parking are very low to no profit margin things to and build. And it's expensive to build. Right. It's extremely yeah. expensive to build so the developer doesn't make a lot of money on them. However, it could have a huge impact on the community if those buildings, the new residents, are forced to park on the street because there's no parking in their building. And then people who have gone to these churches and community centers for generations all of a sudden can't park anywhere near the place where they go on Sunday and then are pushed so far out they can no longer, the community literally dissolves because a building is built. Whereas if that developer was encouraged or forced to build a few levels of parking, 
those communities would not dissolve, whereas a direct result of building parking yeah. versus not. This is where we're going to get contentious, though, because yeah. it would also drive up the prices of those apartment units in a way that would make it less affordable, probably for those same community members to live in that neighborhood. It's, uh, you yeah. can make people build parking so that you can park easier, but mm-hmm. then you're going to drive costs. We're only going to pass those costs on to whoever is the end user right. of that project. And, you know, are some of those people in apartments going to reali- like make the realization that it's a hassle to park in their neighborhood and give up their car? Probably. All of them? No. This circles <laughs> back into, I realize this is a very, very contentious Seattle subject, but mm. all anyone go. wants to yes. talk about in a neighborhood meeting is parking. The same people that are getting super angsty in all of these neighborhood meetings, like the reason that parking matters so much is that voters didn't allow us to have great mass transit 20, 30 years ago yeah. when they yeah. could have. Parking matters because, you know, depending on where you live versus where you work, and how the transit is connecting the two, mm-hmm. a lot of people really do need to still have cars here, which right. is yeah. weird which for a gets, city of our size. Like, we mm-hmm. really shouldn't have to be dealing with this problem anymore. It also gets back to how much of our zoning is locked up in single-family residential, mm-hmm. which is decidedly less dense. And yeah. we won't let you have an accessory dwelling unit unless yeah. you also provide a parking space, which means there aren't very many of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's yeah. all a big circle. It's like, is that is what you're talking about a problem? Yes. <laughs> I definitely don't want all of the community churches to dissolve because there's no parking (laughs) but i'm also like it's one day a week are we going to provide all sorts of parking and drive up costs for everyone the other six days of the week for that one you know i don't know the solution it's a big messy problem and everyone loves talking about parking all the time so what what about um fill me in because i'm not sure i haven't attended any of these community meetings Uh um when you are obligated to have one some new developments coming up, you're mm-hmm. required to have one. Are there rules around who attends or, or how it's promoted? Because I, I guess what I'm getting at and what I'm wondering about is, do the people that attend, are they the people that live adjacent and have their opinions about how their neighborhood is going to be? Or is there anyone that can come and attend and speak for the people that want to be able to live in that neighborhood, but literally can't because they can't afford to buy a single family house in this neighborhood and they would love to live in this neighborhood without a car, with no parking spot or anything, because it's the most convenient place for them to live and work. And they're a younger generation that just wants to live in the city and not be kicked out into the suburbs somewhere. Community input is changing a lot in Seattle because they've just redone all of it. But the way the notification process works is still the same. And it's still based on the radius that you live within wherever the project is. And so that's that doesn't mean you can't attend. Those are fully open to whoever wants to show up. But you likely wouldn't know about it unless you're going to get a direct notice if you live within so many feet of the site. Mm-hmm. So you don't have voices in the room so much that are trying to help the neighborhood move forward and work for the next generation of right, people no. that might own property. You only have the people that are living in an earlier time. Yes. Which, I mean, that's <laughs> the problem with the public forums in a whole host of cities. This is not unique to Seattle, but mm-hmm. the whole mm-hmm. NIMBY effect of you get people who have lived there, who know what they want things the way they are or the way they used to be. And that's, I mean, I think that's human nature. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> the few that I've experienced is you get two class of attendants. You get real people who live in the communities and you get the developers that own property in the communities and the real people that live in the communities basically only talk about parking. That's true. <laughs> and the which is not even like a thing that you're allowed to provide input on at most right. community meetings in Seattle, but right. it's all anyone wants to talk about. And then the developers who own property in the community just talk about that they want this building to look as nice as possible so that their property values stay high. I feel like you should not be allowed to have an opinion in a community meeting about parking if you own a single family residence but don't park your car on your property. You get a lot of guest parking complaints, which I'm like, can you park when you get home from work in your driveway? In my neighborhood in particular, most homes do not have a driveway and there's no space. Okay, then that's fair. They have to park on the street. That's fair. Yeah. I grew up in North Seattle and everybody has a driveway, if not also a garage. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me so mad that people get so angsty about parking on a public street. And it's difficult. I don't know what our role is. It's such a question mark. I don't think that it's fair to say that all developers are just driven by profit. They're not. There's good. There's a spectrum for everything. And there's also a pile of architects that are just terrible people, too. I mean, they, there's just yeah, there is I a mean, spectrum. Yeah. No, but I think it's fair, though, to say that a developer won't build a building unless it is profitable. Which yeah. is a reasonable so thing. Maybe what 100%. you're saying is that they're better business people than architects because an architect might, <laughs> I mean, might design that building and not be that universally true? Isn't that universally true? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a hundred percent true. What I mean by when I say most architects want to do good is they want to build something that is appreciated. There, I encounter very few architects that want to build a building that no one will appreciate or care about. Or In they're a way. Bond villain. Like, <laughs> both sides of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where we're supposed to be on the spectrum as designers and architects. It's so well, I, weird. I think that's that. That's it, though, is that you're... There's no Wherever right anybody answer. is supposed to be on any spectrum, it's the spectrum exists and people are scattered across it. Some people will find themselves to be much more influenced by being very ethical, aligning yep. themselves with their own particular morals or whatever, yep. and other people just don't care. And it's very easy, I feel like, to point at a building that is irresponsible. You can pick those out pretty fast. You'd be like, yep, that one's irresponsible. Like there's vents pointing out to the sidewalk. There's like the minimum amount of windows that they have to put on there. There's no thought. You can see it. Mm -hmm. But, but somebody else were... might be like, that is the most uh, profit per square foot. And that was responsible because, I mean, there, there's different it's ways to interpret it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. We might think it looks terrible, but somebody else was like, well, this was a piece of property that was falling apart and um, children were wandering on to here and, 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 and um, you know, yeah. there was toxic waste and now it's cleaned up and it's not doesn't look great, but at least it's not, um, right. you know, a burden on yeah. the community right. anymore. Well, usually it is a property where someone lived who did get much more than they paid for their property for their home, but is now forced into a market where that doesn't go very far. Regardless of the quality, I mean, of that I think home. that's kind of an oversimplification, though, because is that true? Sometimes, yes, mm -hmm. but I also think that that is like the image we have of every of what was there before any building was there. I worked on this project down in Georgetown, and uh, I was down there having brunch with some friends, and I was like, "Oh, I have this project under construction. We should just walk by and see it's happening." So we're standing outside this project, and it's it's all fenced off, and this neighbor comes by and she's like, it was townhouses. It was, you know, 13 townhouses or something like that. And this neighbor comes by and she's like, oh, isn't this terrible? It's just like <laughs> such a terrible addition to the neighborhood. Like what even happened? I mean, I just can't believe this site previously was a fenced off parking lot. Chain, <laughs> like chain link, like no one parked there. It had been act enacted for decades. It was a yeah. crumbling asphalt <laughs> parking lot. <laughs> and I had told my friends this before we we're standing there, and I, I was just like, I, I'm of course just so annoyed. But um, my friend is, my friend is now provoking her. It was just like, it's, it's not, it was like pressing, and she's like, oh, you know, what was, what was here before? And she's like, oh, I mean, I don't know, but this is terrible. And I was like, how long have you lived in the neighborhood? And she's like, I, I rent around the corner. I've been here for two months. And it's like oh, the perception yeah. of what of this like nostalgia of what used to be there it was this adorable old lady living in an adorable craftsman bungalow and just sitting on the porch every day with her <laughs> glass of iced tea mm -hmm. is irrational like do yeah. those things exist <laughs> yes are they the norm no most of the houses that these things are going in are falling down you see this housing stock frequently not all of it so I, you know sometimes they are really charming craftsman bungalows but a lot of times they're houses that are falling down they're in disrepair maybe they're a rental property maybe the owner lives there but they're not these like pristine architectural jewels we all pretend it, not everything is the up house right mm -hmm. <laughs> like the up house is real it's a thing <laughs> it's now crumbling that's a whole other yeah. story uh -huh. but <laughs> i just think that there's this sort of nostalgia that we all want to oversimplify the picture and every lot was occupied by like mm -hmm. an adorable grandmother and then it's the big bag developer who comes in and it's like the big bad developers are building housing for a lot of people in this city yeah. and allowing our influx that's not stopping because of or not because of developers. Like those people are coming regardless and they need places to live. And if yeah. anyone else would like to continue living in the city and not move to wherever, you know, somewhere that's two hours away to commute from. I mean, maybe I'm overly pro-developer, but you I just think... You can't paint it all with one brush like that. Even if we do say that there's an adorable little old lady that's living in this mm -hmm. house and she wants to be able to live in the city because, you know, she wants to be able to maybe walk to a grocery store, right. not be out there in the suburbs somewhere. Yeah. She doesn't want to, really shouldn't be driving a car anymore, even if she doesn't agree. Yeah. But her kids think totally. that maybe she shouldn't be yeah. driving anymore, right? So this is a, another complicated thing, I guess, is property taxes. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times you end up with these people that have lived in this same house for maybe 50 years, right. but they don't have an income anymore. Mm -hmm. They're, 
you know, up in their years and they can't afford the property taxes on this house that they've they've paid off the mortgage ages ago. Mm -hmm. But the property tax is so expensive. So if you can't fix that problem, like like, let's let's not even bother to get into that. But let's say, okay, you've made the decision. You can't afford to live in this house anymore because the property tax has gone up too much. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have your options be? I have to live out in our suburbs and mm-hmm. not be able to go anywhere ever and be locked in my house because I'm too right. old to drive and my family doesn't live anywhere near. They're not going to come take me to any restaurants or anything. Right. Or do you want there to be housing available where you can just downsize, live in a smaller place, maybe have some community members that live right. in your same building and you can walk everywhere like you normally do? Exactly. And I think that like gets into a bigger thing of I think Washington has other issues with its condo liability that prevents housing mm-hmm. stock that makes it expensive for condos to even exist to give people like that who would be perfect fit for something like that that's Mm -hmm. not the developer's fault i think it's so easy you know i've dealt with plenty of developers and some of them are lovely and some of them are not but i think we just paint them all as like the thing Mm -hmm. that's killing the city that's making ugly buildings and it's like it's just maybe i'm just not a black and white person and there's a lot more gray in the world Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. in general and so it's really hard for me to be like oh i'm just an architect who wants to make beautiful stuff and you're just (laughs) getting in my way it's like i don't think that's reality i think there are challenges working with developers but i think on the whole we need new buildings there's always old buildings that need to be turned over there's always stuff that can be reinvented and i think there's a need to build density in a growing city and developers are doing that some of them are doing a great job some of them are not but i do think that that's a thing we need Mm-hmm. And yes, as architects, I think it's our job to push them and push them to do better design and to engage the community. But I don't think most developers wake up every day and are like, how do I ruin your neighborhood? <laughs> like, that, I don't think it's the thing that's happening. And I no. think it's all too often. And a lot of that is that the community needs to understand that, too. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding by the community members about how their opinions impact what the end result is right. for what gets developed there. Mm-hmm. The development is going to happen. Because I mean, I realize it's complicated. It's not necessarily one to one. And I think I'm just guessing here, but I imagine that a lot of people that attend these types of meetings are a lot of their opinions are very emotional. There's a lot of feeling Definitely. and mm-hmm. personal memories and everything like that attached mm-hmm. to things. And it's maybe not as easy to see that you're getting very angsty about you know, the number of parking spots that are allocated for an right. apartment unit. Whereas a lot of mm-hmm. the people that might want to live in that apartment building definitely don't want a car. Right. Mass transit is, yes, definitely lacking compared to some other big cities, but but there's a lot of people that will be absolutely using it or using other apps and programs. And and I think that there's just a lot of misunderstanding between current neighborhood dwellers and, and the people that would like to be these people's neighbors and they could get along fine, but they don't understand that they operate differently in their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very true. And I think that's the challenge of working in a city that's changing is you have all these different perspectives. And I, a lot of times as someone who attends these meetings and you go and you're like, well, you kind of should have been mad 10 years ago when the zoning changed, (laughs) right? Because like, that's really what's driving it is that you suddenly you're able to build something that's 65 feet tall on this lot. And the reality of economics and capitalism is someone's going to do it eventually. (laughs) And is it terrible that they're next to your your lot that's single family zone and the biggest thing you can build there is a house for one family? Yeah, that's not a great gradient, but like that's kind that of on the happened. city and mm-hmm. it happened a long time ago. And I understand you're mad, but like kind of should have been mad before <laughs> when it could have changed something. And no one wants to hear that. It's not a really good way to start a conversation with a neighbor. So anyway, uh, I don't know. So we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. If like the greatest developer ever just came to you and <laughs> said like with the best heart uh-huh. and was just like, Sandy, I want to, I want to build something that's like super responsible and I do real good. What do I do? What are the important things I need to keep in mind? What would you tell, what would you tell them? I mean, the developers that I think are the most enjoyable to work with are the ones that are the most collaborative and are also really transparent about their goals for the project, which sounds obvious, but a lot of times it's really hard to get a developer to even show you the Excel spreadsheet that they're using to make their decisions. And I think if someone came to me and said, regardless of what they're doing, like let's say they're building apartments, they said, hey, this is how many apartments I need to get to break even. And this is the rent I want. And this is like what I'm trying to do here this is the number I need to hit and I want to do it in the best way possible. I think that would be the place to start the conversation where you're just clear about what do you really need to get out of this site? Like, 
okay, great. Could we squeeze eight more units out? Maybe. But is this the thing that we really want? And how do we make this a quality building that's long lasting that you're proud to own um, and just do the right thing? I, I think a lot of times it's there's so much lack of understanding is that neither side really trusts each other <laughs> with all the information. And so then it becomes this whole like, I'm trying to do this thing, but I'm not going to tell you about it. And like, <laughs> I'm going to try to push you in this direction that you may or may not want to go. And I think the best relationships I've ever had with clients is just where there's a baseline trust and they're really open about what they want and what they want to do. And they're willing to try something that's maybe a little bit untested and it's not just like, well, this is how we do it and this is how we've always done it. I think that's the hardest part is when you are working with someone who doesn't want to think through new options and is just really set in their ways, that's always going to be frustrating. What do you think about architects who are their own developers? I mean, I think it's a really great thing. And I I think there are places that are doing it really well. You see a ton of it in San Diego, uh, which is kind of the birthplace of that movement. There's been a lot of success there, I think, because architects bring a unique perspective and they do tend to be willing to try something a little new they're really aesthetic driven typically these are all mass generalizations but I think that that's an interesting angle and I think you see some of it here not as much it's not as common for whatever reason but you see the really design forward developments that are focusing on doing something new and I think they are really successful in the market, whether they're getting higher rents or you're seeing kind of the third round of if they're single family homes or townhouses or whatever being sold and they're still holding value. Um, all too often with those developments, when you're selling something in particular, the developer's really interested in the first list price, right? That's the thing they care about. But it's also interesting to see how that falls off or how it doesn't grow as quickly over the years because there's always a sort of premium for something that's new that no one's ever lived in before. But for things that don't age well, you're like, oh, yeah, that was great when it was new. But like once the patina and once you start patinaing and it starts to start mm-hmm. to realize like it wasn't that well built or it wasn't that well designed or whatever, it doesn't hold the value in the same way. And I think maybe you're starting to see some of that now in the market as Seattle's housing market cools a little bit but it's also hard because developers don't care it's all about the initial sales price Mm -hmm. even with rent i was talking to somebody the other day about the incentive for apartments in particular there's some algorithm as far as how quickly it turns over we actually want a quicker turnover because it makes it easier to raise rents if someone's living in your apartment for five years it's harder to get incremental rent hikes Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. turning them over and that's a weird system to incentivize a good building right? <laughs> you're like well if you don't get any payoff and you actually want people to move out faster it's sort of like fast food where you want people to move quickly mm-hmm, so you right. can fill those seats more often mm-hmm. i that don't think sense. there's any brilliant answer to that that's kind of like welcome to capitalism <laughs> uh, On that i don't note, know <laughs> thank you very much for making time to sit and chat with us i really appreciate it no problem Oh, our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on social media for that. It will be held here on Boredom Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or the blog on boredomvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.